0: Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verses 8 and 10 through 13. In the second year after their arrival at the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jozadak, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their people— the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upwards to have oversight of the work on the house of the Lord. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of families Old people, who had seen the first house on its foundations, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. Away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jessica Stern is an American scholar. Her expertise is terrorism. She understands from professional and personal experience how a traumatic event can impact a life, dividing it into before and after. In her memoir, she writes, some people's lives seem to flow in a narrative. Mine had many stops and starts. That's what trauma does. It interrupts the plot. You can't process it because it doesn't fit with what came before or what comes afterward. In most of our lives, most of the time, you have a sense of what's to come. There is a steady narrative a feeling of lights, camera, action, when big events are imminent. But trauma isn't like that. It just happens, and then life goes on. No one prepares you for it. Do you know what it's like to have your world come crashing down? To open your eyes and discover that even though you're standing right where you were before, nothing around you looks familiar? To have your life divided into before and after? Of course you do. It's 2021, a difficult year in a string of difficult years. Many of our community's children have just gone back to school in person for the first time in a year and a half. But school looks drastically different than before because of the pandemic. Climate change is bringing stronger, more destructive storms and fires and floods. A renewed racial reckoning has changed the very landscape of our city as monuments have been reinterpreted, and dismantled, and through it all, we have experienced the fraying of the social fabric that holds us together. We know exactly what it is like to wonder how on earth we got here, to have life divided into before and after, to experience profound disorientation. Well, I don't know if you have ever read the biblical book of Ezra. I do know I have never preached on it. But recently, a colleague suggested that Ezra might just be the scripture that has the most to teach us right now. This Old Testament book is essentially a history text describing for us what it was like when our Jewish ancestors reunited in Jerusalem after decades of exile. They were a people divided because not all the Israelites had gone into exile. The Babylonians had practiced strategic deportation, targeting for exile the elite and powerful, the political and religious rulers, the wealthy, while the rest of the people stayed behind in a land now occupied by their worst enemy. As you can imagine, when the exiles returned some 70 years later, relations between those two groups were strained as they tried to sort out how to rebuild the city and their lives. This was a community that had suffered a collective trauma, and they were now in a position of figuring out how to heal together. Bessel van der Kolk published his book, The Body Keeps the Score, in 2014 after a career studying children and adults and how they adapt to trauma and how they can be effectively treated. Over the past year, this book has returned to the top of the bestseller list as we have collectively struggled to understand trauma and its effects. For many, what has resonated so deeply in van der Kolk's work is that He says trauma isn't just something that happens in our brains, it lodges itself in our bodies as well. Which means that to heal from trauma, we must attend to our whole selves, body, mind, and spirit. Vander Kolk observes two important elements of trauma. First, that when a catastrophic event is communal, when it happens to all of us, and we can think of something like 9-11 or the pandemic, it's actually less likely to cause trauma because the event is shared and we can support one another through it, which is different from a traumatic event that happens to an individual and cuts that person off from their community. He also observes that civic and religious institutions have always had a role to play in helping communities process difficult events and that these institutions do this through experiences and rituals that involve our bodies, singing, moving, speaking together. In the church, this is what we call worship. It turns out that worship, this time when a group of people comes together for a shared, embodied experience, is healing. How do we resist the temptation to give up on the world as a hopeless place that will never get better? How do we set aside the urgent needs of our daily lives and work together to build a better future? How do we see God in the best and worst of our lives and our world. For Christians, one answer has always been, we worship. We gather together in a time and space that is both set apart from and deeply rooted in our daily lives and experiences. We do things together in worship that we don't do in other places. In fact, in almost any other setting, these actions would seem rather odd we stand up together we sit down together we sing hymns we recite prayers and creeds we listen to and wrestle with ancient texts and it turns out that doing all of these things with our bodies minds hearts and souls and doing them together is healing the exiles must have known this because when they returned to Jerusalem, their focus was on rebuilding the temple. Now, this took a while. The first exiles returned to Jerusalem in 539 BCE, but that story we heard today when the people laid the foundation of the temple probably happened around 20 years after that return. Ezra tells us something about why it took so long Although rebuilding the temple was an immediate priority, Ezra notes that this project required resources of both labor and supplies. And it also required collaboration among those who had gone into exile and those who had stayed behind, those who wanted to build the temple exactly like the one that was there before, and those who thought this was an opportunity to build it differently. All these challenges meant they had to take time and work together, no doubt with debates and compromises, until finally they were ready to lay the foundation. And when they did, as we heard in our text today, it was a deeply emotional event. There was music and singing and praying The elders of the community, maybe there were still a few who remembered the former temple and who held those memories deep in their minds and their bodies. They wept with a loud voice. Others, perhaps those who were younger, who had only heard about the temple in stories and who longed to experience its wonders, shouted for joy. Soon it seems everyone was lifting their voices together in a chorus of sorrow and grief, hope and rejoicing, and the resulting sounds mingled together so thoroughly that the people could no longer distinguish the joy from the sorrow. Worship is a time we set apart to draw near to God and for God to draw near to us But our practice of setting worship apart creates a dangerous perception. For if we see worship only as a time and place separate from the rest of our lives, we might think we have to leave our worries and anxieties at the door of the sanctuary. We might think that emotions like grief and longing, fear and doubt, anger and worry have no place in worship. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, the psalmist tells us. And sometimes we think if we can't come to worship with full-throated joy, it's better just not to come at all. Ezra and the history of God's people, of our people, suggests otherwise. This account of the first worship in the rebuilt temple clearly reveals worship is the place we get to bring all our emotions Even the conflicting ones, even the messy ones, even when the clash of emotions either in ourselves or among our gathered community is so great that someone listening in can't even distinguish our sorrow from our joy. In the latter years of his life, my grandfather developed his artistic talent. He spent hours each day painting, took classes to improve his craft, and spent the weekends going to festivals and showing and selling his work. When he died suddenly a week after discovering he had advanced cancer, our family gathered together in Georgia And my grandmother invited us to go upstairs to his studio and choose what we wanted from among the sketches and paintings we found there. I chose several paintings that I cherish to this day. But I found something else there that has meant just as much to me. It was a single sheet of paper on which someone, presumably my grandfather, had typed up a quote Attributed to William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, from 1942 to 1944, that came from a radio broadcast to the United States. This is what it said. I am disposed to begin by making what many people will feel to be a quite outrageous statement. This world can be saved from political chaos and collapse by one thing only. And that is worship. For to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, feed the mind with the truth of God, purge the imagination by the beauty of God, open the heart to the love of God, devote the will to the purpose of God. In the midst of a world war, that must have been unimaginably disturbing and disorienting, William Temple believed the world could be saved by one thing, worship. And then he defines worship in such a way that suggests it can't ever be confined to one time or place or style or outcome. Worship is whenever and wherever and however we bring ourselves and our communities together as we are to encounter the healing love of God. One of my best friends from seminary is both a pastor and a yoga teacher. And one of the things she reminds me regularly is that yoga is all about showing up. Teachers call this getting on the mat. It's okay if you get on your yoga mat and spend an hour in child's pose while everyone around you is doing something else, what matters is getting on your mat. The same is true for worship. The most important part is showing up. Today, as a community, we're taking a step into our future with a new schedule for worship. And what I most want for all of us is that we remember that whether we worship in the sanctuary in the morning, under a tent in the evening, at home in our living rooms watching the live stream, or out on a walking trail listening to our podcast, what matters most is showing up. What matters is that we bring ourselves, our whole selves, bodies, minds, hearts, souls, Because whether we are shouting with joy or wailing with grief or overwhelmed with life or dragged down with apathy, worship is where God invites us to come to meet God and one another just as we are. Serge Maimon was working as a reporter for the New York Times on 9 11, and his article ended up being the lead article about that tragedy that ran the next day, 20 years ago today. But of all the memories he has of the terrible day of 9 11, the one that most often comes back to him is riding the subway home in the small hours of the morning. He writes A woman sitting next to me began humming loudly, my first. Shameful reaction was, who needs this? But then a man across the aisle, slumped in his seat in exhaustion, began humming along. Someone else joined in, and soon I, too, closed my eyes and let the music take over. Drained of emotion and thought, we surrendered to the refuge of sweet harmony. And so the healing begins. Amen.